Welcome to the Cashflow Canucks podcast, where Canadian entrepreneurs and investors come to learn about wealth creation. Experts in their fields will join your host, Peter Lount, to share their successes, challenges, and discuss opportunities. Join me and my guest, Robert Schmidt, as we talk about what the B2B brand distillery service can do for your business. Robert is a branding strategist, an entrepreneur, and the principal and president of Rebox, a company specializing in B2B branding. He's going to give insight to the world of marketing and branding and what it takes to effectively communicate your brand to your target market. Welcome and enjoy. All right, today on Cashflow Connects, we have Robert Schmidt, principal and president of Rebox. Robert, welcome. Thank you. Robert, can you uh, introduce yourself to the Cashflow Connects community? Tell a little bit about yourself. Um, maybe start with um, what you do and how you came to be where you, you are today. Sure. Um, what I do, I am a uh, branding strategist and I'm also an entrepreneur. I'm a dad. I'm a husband of a fabulous wife. Um, Shauna, thank you. So if you watch this, I get credit. And uh, I came to be in this position, uh, actually, 10 years ago, almost, I was a management consultant, and I merged my firm that I was doing um, all sorts of uh, strategic advisory services around the world. I merged my firm with a design firm, and voila, created this entity called Rebox. And uh, I've been sitting here in this seat since, uh, yeah, almost 10 years ago, 2011, actually, is when we began. Very nice. And how was that? Like, um, maybe take me through a bit of that, the journey to make those transitions. How was that experience for you? You know, as I talk to so many entrepreneurs, it's, it's always like, I guess there's the vision. Everybody says, Oh, you're just, that guy's good at what he does. Right. So that's why he's, that's why he is where he is. Can you talk about any type of, you know, monumental maybe moments for you in terms of that transition? Yeah. Um, I'll actually take it back a little further, if I may. So sure. in, I had a, a career in corporate life. I was a director in a telecommunications company, and I, I had teams in Vancouver, in Calgary, in Edmonton, all over Western Canada. And I was going through an executive MBA at the time. Um, I was fortunate to be one of the youngest people ever to go through the program. I had all sorts of wise individuals um, around me that, you know, I would talk to them about life, about business, about corporate. And something happened halfway through the program where I realized I was actually unemployable. Now, it doesn't mean I didn't have a job. It meant that I was at about five years in my time with that company. And I looked around in the corporation and everyone who had been there five years and beyond became lifers. Everyone who had left prior to five years, well, you weren't one of those lifers, of course. And I didn't want to become one of those lifers. I knew I wanted to try some stuff on my own. And if I didn't take the leap at the time, I was never going to do that. So I actually uh, graduated with my grad studies and uh, within a couple of months had left corporate life, resigned, handed in my letter, went out onto my own, uh, did a few different things and then led into management consulting. And then from there ended up where I am now as a uh, branding consultant, you know, where my firm helps different organizations around the world distill the essence of who they are and then tell that story. So for me, it was the realization that, you know, I didn't want to stay employed with a large corporation and I knew that I had to try something. Um, 
I often say that, you know, for myself, um, Schmidt or get off the pot. So I, I had to make a decision that it was time to do something. Right. And so, but in that moment, remarried, did you have a house, did you have kids, all those things, those are typical yes. things that kind of hold people back. And what do you think it was that kind of drove you to make that leap? I, I had all of those things. I had a new daughter. I had a wife I'd been married to for a, almost a decade. Um, I had a mortgage. I had a car. I had car payments. Um, for me, it was that point that um, first and foremost, I didn't do it isolated. You know, I, I talked to my wife a fair amount before I actually took the leap. And I will say that behind every great entrepreneur is a phenomenal partner. And my wife was that partner. You know, she wasn't concerned that when I was consulting at the peak of my consulting, um, I would bill, you know, upwards $10,000 a day, which is phenomenal rates. Don't get me wrong. But to get to that point, there was an awful lot of weeks and months where there was no money coming in the front door. And there's lots of money going out the back door. Um, my wife knew what she was getting into with me and allowed, you know, when we talked about that, she did not cause me grief. She was probably the one person standing there going, no, I'm in this for the long haul. Let's do this. So um, I didn't wait for a perfect time because I don't know what a perfect time would look like, but I found an opportune time and then built the environment around me. Um, and I, I, I shared with you outside of the context of this show that I'm a skydiver. And um, I actually looked out the door before I leaped out. But I sure as heck made sure I had my parachute on and I made sure I had all the other pieces together. So, yeah, definitely. Well, that's good. Thank you for sharing that. Uh, yeah. That part of it, I think it's so important for people to, to hear those stories because it's never that easy. But, you know, like adding, you know, your wife to that story, I think is, is so important. I think that kind of gets lost sometimes in, in a lot of that, um, a lot of the journey, but so important to have strong foundations at home. Um, I wanted to go into, um, jump into now B2B brand distillery. What does that mean? And what makes that unique from other people that are in your business? Sure. Um, so in, in our space, there's a lot of creative work that's done. And a lot of people in the marketing and communications world, you know, it's about fun. It's about need. It's about innovative. Like if you think of a, a Super Bowl commercial. You know, they spend millions of dollars to produce it. They spend millions of dollars to air it. We're all entertained by it, but we can't remember what the heck it was for by the time the commercial's done. Um, I personally hate that about our space. So when we created Rebox, it was a merger of a consulting firm that did strategic positioning and a design firm. And we created Rebox, the brand distillery, because all the work that we do is based on the brand itself first and foremost. It's all the foundational work that has to happen. Um, for instance, if a, a, a client comes to us and says, can you build a website? You know, there's a million people out there that can build websites. There's freelancers, there's companies. So if we just said we're a better website company than the people beside us, no offense, but BS. Like, how do you quantify that and how do you prove it? So as a brand distillery, what differentiates us is we get to the essence of the brand before we do any work. We know what it is about the organization that's unique and valued. And then we make sure everything that's ever produced for them has to communicate that message across the way. 
And it's dealing with things like emotions, which in, in the world of business to business, you know, it, it's emotionless facts and figures, just RFPs and all that. And Google did a study a few years ago with a consultancy out of Europe that found that emotion plays um, an 800% higher in, uh, input in the B2B space than in the B2C space. And if you think about that, you know, you and I are going to go for a cup of coffee and we pick a coffee shop and it's not a great experience. Yeah, we're out half an hour while we sat there and maybe five bucks for the cup of coffee. Um, but if I'm in a business to business and I bring in the wrong IT consultancy firm or the wrong fleet of vehicles, you know, I'm fired. And that's highly emotional. So our differentiator as a distillery is, again, distilling down the essence of what the brand is and then making sure that everything we ever produce that speaks on behalf of that client actually communicates that brand first and foremost before anything else. And was that something that, like, how did that evolve for you? That Great question. Um, I'm the outsider to my industry. I was a consultant for many years. And when I came to this industry, it was actually a client who encouraged that. Um, we had done work on figuring out what the brand should be for one of our clients. And they asked us to look after all the marketing materials and all the advertising for them. And I kind of smiled and said, you know, we don't do that. That's not our thing. Um, and he said, well, we spend over a million dollars a year. So if it could be your thing, we'd really love to know. And the entrepreneurian in me smiled and um, I had known a guy who did phenomenal work on the design side. So we, we merged and we came to the table to be able to produce this thing called Reeboks. And when we first started, you know, we, we practice what we preach, where when we started the firm, the legal name of the entity is Reeboks Creative Inc. And we were based on being creative. So we had a business card that was, you know, two by three, and it popped into a little box when you, when you pushed on the sides of it. It was very funky and very cool. But based on the work we were doing with organizations, um, creative was kind of table stakes. It was like, you know, come to our restaurant because we follow safe food handling practices. It's almost like, duh, of course, creative should be part of what you do. So we evolved our own brand. And a few years ago, we actually refined our brand to be a brand distillery. Whereas before that, we were a firm called Rebox Creative. And our market told us pretty quickly that creative was table stakes. We were more than just that. So that's where we actually evolved our own brand into the brand distillery concept. Right, and your focus is really, you said, tapping into the emotion, sounds like that's, and is there a fine line there with, I mean, not to say specifically to this time, but I think there's def definitely everything gets politicized, everything gets more, everything just overanalyzed. Do you, has that evolved for you? How you um, deliver messages to, I, I, I would say that as a firm, we, we advise to our clients not to be opportunistic. Mm. So what I mean by that is, you know, the COVID lockdowns, I think it was for two months or three months after it happened in the middle of March, you would see all sorts of ads and hear ads going out like, you know, we know it's important to separate, but we're all in this together. And it was all that blah, blah, blah. That's not what I'm referring to on the emotional side. What I'm referring to on the emotional side is um, think of a human. Think of yourself or myself, Peter. 
if I met you on the street, are you the kind of person I'd want to have a coffee with? And then how would I describe you? You know, I can see bookshelf behind you. I've got a bookshelf behind me. Um, you know, there's some intellectual food that we can chew on if you and I have a conversation. Um, we're not just hype. So I start to get emotions like, I would trust you. You've, you've created the cash flow Canucks for a reason. Um, that creates an emotional, I, I get a sense of trust in there. So those are the emotions we're talking about, not the emotions of response and hype and extreme emotions, but the emotions that we do and we use every single day to purchase whatever we're buying, whether it's in a consumer side or a business side. So that's the emotions we look at. How do you want to be perceived? How do you want people to feel about your brand when they experience it? Okay, so I'm going to go back to maybe more um, just basics of sales and marketing. Sure. Um, what is the difference between the two? How important is marketing to drive sales, vice, vice versa? What are your, your thoughts on that? There's, you have clients that say, I've only got X amount to spend, so this is what we're going to work within, or what are your, what's your opinion on that? So I, I would say that sales is the interactions between an individual and the prospective. That's the sales side of the house. It's the meetings, it's the discussions, it's the explanation, it's managing the sales process. I would say that marketing is all the stuff that gets you to the door. And then after you've left that meeting, it's what happens when you're not in the room anymore. So marketing, and in particular, my world of branding and communications is where we help the salespeople, or better yet, we help the executives figure out what type of salespeople they want. And by that, I don't mean transactional. I mean the feeling. How do you want people to perceive your organization? Well, if the salespeople are actually um, exhibiting those sorts of emotions because that's who they are, um, salespeople will do what they do. They're representing the brand. But when that salesperson leaves something behind and they leave the room, and that prospective client goes and talks to someone else in their organization, that bit of material that's left, that's where marketing comes into play. It's what helps tell the story when you're not there. And it's also what primes the pump, if you will, to get people ready to talk to the salespeople. So we work hand in hand with sales as opposed to opposed to sales. And I'll say if, if you have audience um, members who carry the title of you know, sales and marketing manager, director of sales and marketing, I would probably say that they're one and not the other because they're both um, professions unto themselves. And if you're great at sales, you're probably not great at marketing. And if you're great at marketing, you're probably not that great at sales. Maybe that speaks to the importance of, even as, you know, within a group of lots of entrepreneurs that depending on the size of them, sometimes they're holding many hats, but talking about maybe leverage resources outside of your scope to allow you to focus on your business on maybe some other areas that may maybe energize you, help elevate your business, but hire some of those resources out to, you know, accelerate some of the processes that maybe actually slowing down, if anything. 100%. We have, we have one of our clients who had built a, a business, founded it from ground zero, built it from nothing. Um, you know, they had revenues upwards of over $100 million a year after I think it was about a dozen years. And, um, you know, they had salespeople, they had teams around the world. 
when we came to the table, they called us in because they weren't really sure who they were anymore. They, they had grown so much that they really didn't know who they were. And this is a, a, an entrepreneur, a founder of the organization. Well, when we interviewed their market, we found out why people bought from them, what really made them unique um, compared to everyone else and valued by their market. We presented those findings to the executive team and the CEO, who was the founder, sat at the end of the table and didn't say a word. Everyone else is like, these are great results. We love your recommendations. This is brilliant. Um, and he didn't say a word. And I, I said to him, I said, you know, Garrett, you haven't said a word yet. What's going on? And he dropped the F-bomb. <laughs> and I kind of sat back and went, oh, okay, is that F-bomb for the work we did or something else? And he goes, Rob, all the stuff you guys are telling us to do right now is exactly what got us our success early on. And then we lost sight of what got us to where we are. And we started to do everything else. So from our perspective, um, he was a founder, an entrepreneur, a salesperson who knew what he needed to do. We just helped get them back to what got them their success in the beginning. And it was how they built what they built from an equipment perspective. So really, really good branding, communications, marketing should get to the essence of that founder. And as you've got entrepreneurs that are listening to this and they're trying to grow their business, you know, they got to realize what are they really, really good at? You know, look at, look at the E-Myth as a, a very famous book that every entrepreneur should read at least a couple of times. I think I've read it about three or four times. Um, if you make cookies or cakes, that's great. You're a phenomenal baker it doesn't mean you should be doing the books. So yeah, do what you're best at, what your passion is, what you're driven to do, and then start bringing in other experts to help you make the rest of it happen. And it's surprising because usually entrepreneurs, my experience shows that, you know, they're, they're trying to conserve cash and do it on bootstrapping. And the challenge is the amount of time they're delaying and wasting on trying to bootstrap it often could have paid for itself over and over and over within the first year if they bring in experts and other professionals. Very nice. Um, and so how, how about that? How is that working for you in terms of how you run your business? Is that something that, how do you um, deliver that with what you do? Well, I, I, I practice what I preach, but I'm still human and I still feel the entrepreneurial bootstrapping. So I will tell you, I catch myself all the time. Um, IT work, for instance. So we have a small firm um, based just outside of downtown Calgary here. And, uh, you know, we need to network all of our computers. Well, I can do that. And I will catch myself starting. You know, I'll end up buying some computers and I'll start connecting it. And then I will stop. And I will quickly go, no, I am much more effective at what I do. My billable rates are much higher if I'm doing what I do externally to my clients. Call someone, whether it's an individual or a firm, get them to come in and do what they do really, really well. And I will almost always get a higher return by doing that than if I try and bandage it together on my own over a weekend. So I catch myself still doing that entrepreneurial bootstrapping, but then I will stop and go, no, no, mm -mm. I've done what I do long enough that I know when it makes sense to, you know, pay a professional to do what they need to do. Right. Um, and so for you as an entrepreneur, what's kind of been your secret to success, either through growing wealth or just growing your business or what, what would you say is, or, you know, something you could, you know, give as a tip to some of the cash flow connect group in terms of, 
what's the, what are, what's their, what are, I guess it's always looking for other not shortcuts, but yeah, sometimes it's, it is that right. It's learning from yeah. those before you and yeah. if there's anything you could share. That. Yeah, my, my, my biggest point, I actually just had this conversation with a colleague over lunch hour, um, which is uh, probably for any entrepreneur, and it ties to what we just talked about, which is know thyself. And I mean, you know, that big, deep voice on the top of a mountain, like know thyself. Because if you know yourself, then that tells you what you're great at. It tells you what you're better than 95% of the world at. And that also tells you what you suck at and what you shouldn't be doing. And as an entrepreneur, you're not building a job. You're building an organization. And as such, you better know what you're great at. You better know what you're not so that when you need to bring other people in and other firms in and other organizations into stuff that you don't do well at, you know when to bring them in and you know when to do what you do yourself. So that's probably the biggest learning I have is, again, know thyself. Even as a firm with our brand, you know, we will not deviate from being a brand distillery where we distill the essence, we package it, and then we serve and promote it. If prospective clients phone us up and they're like, hey, can you just do this for us? And we go, sure. What would you like to say? They go, I don't know. Just make it up. We don't care. Um, we will turn down that short-term business as opposed to Knowing what we need to do, which is get to the essence of the brand so we can promote that, um, it keeps us on the straight and narrow as well. So I'd say probably the greatest success in my firm um, for what we do is know thyself, be true to yourself, don't deviate, don't differentiate into places you shouldn't go. And um, it's easier said than done, but it's probably what's kept us as successful as we have been because we don't dilute our brand by being all things to all people. Right. And what is your vision for your brand or your entrepreneurial journey, say five years, 10 years from now, I'm sure how far you're looking out, but what's next for you? Um, so in our own firm, if you had asked me this question prior to COVID, <laughs> um, my answer would be slightly different on the time horizon, but the ultimate vision hasn't changed. So I'm, I'm a big picture thinker. I'm the guy who comes in, looks at an organization and quickly can assess what the brand is, what the essence is, and then how to promote that. And I bring in really talented people to lead the execution of all of that work. Um, again, know thyself. If I get my hands involved in stuff I shouldn't be in, it's going to go sideways really, really quick. So for me, it's being more true to myself every day where you know I will get on an airplane and go meet with a client or hop on a Zoom call and meet with a client where when it has to do with distilling the brand, living that brand experience, teaching, communicating that, um, that's what I will do. But it won't involve me on a Monday to Friday, day to day, you know, nine to six kind of a role. Um, so a long answer to your question is what will I be doing in you know five years down the road? I'll be less involved in the day-to-day of my firm more involved in the strategic level of my firm, and then also contributing my expertise to other stuff that I do, you know, teaching at a couple different universities, um, finishing the book, doing a whole bunch of things along those lines. Um, tell us about the book. Ah, I shouldn't have brought it up. Now it's going to be holding <laughs> me accountable. Um, the, the book is titled Schmitter Get Off the Pot, after my last name. 
Um, and it goes to the essence again of who I am, which is many organizations hum and haw about who they should be. And it's tough to make a decision in a branding world on who you are, because you actually have to say who you're not at the same time. Because of course, if you're all things to all people, you're nothing for anyone. So the book has to do with what keeps us from making a decision. And it's mostly fear that's behind it. So I tie that into, you know, my skydiving background. I tie that into lessons from my grandfather um, as a kid. And it's a story that goes on to talk about how many places life where fear comes in um, to keep us from doing what we should do or to keep us, you know, Schmidt or get off the pot, quit deliberating for eternity and just make a decision. Thanks. Um, I'm going to ask you a question. You mentioned skydiving too. Yeah. Um, yeah. Why do you, why do you do that? What, what, <laughs> what brought you to that? And what, uh, skydiving is one of those sports. So I did my first skydive back in 1989 and that'll, you know, start to age me. I skydived for a couple of years and then I stopped as life got in the way, a wife, career, children, school. Um, and I got back into it about five years ago and, uh, it wasn't a midlife crisis. It was a case that I'd thought about it since I did it. And now my wife and kids, like my kids are old enough that, you know, we had that conversation that what if something happens to me? Um, my wife is not, you know, the single mom of little tiny kids. Um, so I got back into it, but it had always been a, a love of something I love to do. Probably because when you're in it, um, you're present in the moment. You can't think about oh, I wonder how that meeting's going to go in two days. And so often in business, we're not only thinking about what's happening now, but we're thinking a week down the road. You just asked me a question about what I'm going to be doing in five years from now. Um, when that door opens up and I'm at 12,000 to 14,000 feet and I pop out of that airplane, um, nothing else matters but that moment. All I am thinking about is where do I fly? How do I get to where I'm trying to do? What maneuvers am I going to do? And then after the parachute opens, not only am I enjoying the scenery, um, but I'm also, you know, how do I get to my landing area and how do I come down safe? And when I touch the ground every moment, um, there's this exhilarating thrill of, you know, ha, that's living. That's what I choose to do. And again, it goes back to Schmidt or get off the pod. I can talk about skydiving, which is what I did for 25 years, or I can get back into it. And uh, yeah, it's it was one of those events that I'm, I'm glad I'm back in as, you know, as a coach where I now help people get better at their own skydiving. So. Cool. And um, maybe not exactly, but the closest I can come to relating to that is just meditation. I don't know if that's kind of the yeah. same kind of essence, right. Of just. hundred percent. We, we have a lot of skydiver colleagues of mine that will practice um, meditation because it clears your mind. And if you look at a lot of successful entrepreneurs, many of them has, a, you know, one of their key secrets is um, spend some time and clear your mind because you can't multitask. That's actually a fallacy and it's BS that the world has told us of, oh, just multitask. I, I don't buy it. I think you can do one or two things really, really well and a whole bunch of stuff mediocre. So meditation is the same. You clear your mind. You can focus on nothing and everything at the same time. Yeah. If you're in that game, 
um, you're almost a skydiver. So you let me know when you want to add a little bit of <laughs> gravity and, and, and you're already halfway there. Right. I just need a, what do you say? I need a term rider to get myself, uh, we'll, we'll get you looked after that way and someone will help you out the front door. So no worries on that. There you go. There you go. Um, well, Robert, I really appreciate you sharing your story, your journey, and um, a lot of the knowledge you've imparted on uh, in terms of that journey itself and how you help brands. Um, can you talk about maybe just get me into how do people get in touch with you? Who is your ideal client that you're looking to deal with? Maybe just whether it's geography or size, I know, it's always getting to the essence or distill the message, but who can, who, who do you help? Sure. So if someone wants to get a hold of us, they can find us on our website at wearereboks.com. And that's, you know, W-E-W-R-A-R-E, Reboks, R-E-B-O-X.com. Um, and for us, our target customer that we look after is not based on demographic or geographic. It's actually based on psychographic. So our clients, regardless of whether they're startup or you know, a, we've got a client who's a $5 billion publicly traded company that we do work for. Um, the psychographic is what's important to us. And that is someone who knows what they're great at. And when I say they, I don't mean just them as the individual executive, but I mean they as a firm. You know, If they're a manufacturing firm and they know manufacturing, but they really suck at branding and communications. They have to know that and they have to be comfortable enough that we can close the door and have a real conversation about that. Um, and it's not their bad. It's that that's not their strength. So the psychographic side, the perfect uh, target market for us is the individual who knows themselves. They know what they're great at. And one of those things that they're great at or that they're not great at is marketing, branding and communications work. So um, regardless of the size of client, you know, we have startups that um, we're not an inexpensive firm by any means, but when it comes to figuring out how we pay for the value we bring them, we have all sorts of ways that we can work with clients. We have some clients that we have royalty agreements in place with that we help them on their product side. So how do we communicate the message of their product and differentiate it, make sure it's unique and valued? Well, every time that product rings at a cash register, my firm gets a little tiny piece of that. And that's a way to pay it from a financing perspective. But the value is where we, you know, come to the table. And if a client goes, you know, oh, wow, you cost us tens of thousands of dollars to hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this work. Yeah, we're not going to argue about the value of it. But we can work with all of our clients on the on the payment terms of that. And that's, you know, kind of the entrepreneurial side. Right. Well, that's good. Very nice. Well, thank you, Robert. I really appreciate your time and uh, wish you all the best. You're welcome. Thank you so much for inviting me on. Thank you for taking time to listen to the Cash Flow Canucks podcast. You'll be able to find out more about our guests and how to connect with them in the show notes for this episode. Would you like to learn the secret way savvy investors and smart entrepreneurs are turning their expenses into positive cash flow? Then you want to read the Infinite Banking Concept book. For a limited time, I am giving away free copies of this book valued at $30. If you want a copy, just email me, Peter, with the subject line book to peter at cashflowcanucks.ca. Again, if you want a free copy of the Infinite Banking Concept book, just email me at peter at cashflowcanucks.ca with the subject line book and your mailing address, and I'll send you a copy. You'll finally understand how the wealthy elite is turning everyday expenses into cash flow. 
just email me at peter at cashflowcanucks.ca. 